0: Hi, welcome to the Ankler Podcast. I'm Janice Min, joined today by my co-host, Richard Rushfield. And today we are so thrilled to have Lena Kahn, chair of the Federal Trade Commission, join us on the Ankler Podcast. A quick introduction, uh, Chair Kahn first gained attention as a Yale Law School student for a paper she wrote, Amazon's Antitrust Paradox, which went about as viral as an academic paper can go. It garnered attention at the highest levels of government and the media, and in the paper she wrote that Amazon had amassed so much power that it was actually controlling parts of the economy in such a way where small businesses and retail, retailers had become dependent on their biggest competitor even to survive. She called for a reexamination of the traditional ways antitrust regulation has been used. Uh, traditionally, it's focused largely on the consumer in terms of pricing and fraud. Fast forward to 2021, and President Joe Biden appointed the then 32-year-old to be chair of the FTC. She is also an associate professor of law at Columbia. Since then, she has overseen the agency's attempt to block Microsoft's $70 billion acquisition of Activision Blizzard and fought to block Meta from buying the VR startup within. And last month, the FTC and DOJ released guidelines for what companies will be required to consider in future mergers. One of the 13 points is for companies to consider the impact of proposed transactions on labor, which brings us to the world of entertainment. Welcome, Chair Khan.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Thanks for being here. Um, So I have to start with a pretty basic question here. Los Angeles is about 2,700 miles from Washington, D.C., but the entertainment business has caught the eye of the FTC. You even recently joined a picket in July with the WGA outside of The View. I'm sure you're a big watcher. Um, Can you explain what's happening here? How did this all come,
1: come to be? So at the Federal Trade Commission, Congress has charged us with preventing unfair methods of competition and promoting fair methods of competition. And so we oversee you know, huge swaths of the U.S. economy, uh, markets ranging from healthcare to grocery. Uh, as part of our job, I'm always really keen to be hearing from people on the ground about how have markets changed, what are the ways in which markets may no longer be serving both the producers and creators that are trying to access customers, as well as the end customers. And increasingly in the US, we see markets that are not serving the best interests of producers or consumers. So look at the food supply chain where you have consumers paying more, even as farmers are seeing a smaller and smaller share, or healthcare where we hear from doctors who are frustrated that they can't provide quality care to patients or independent pharmacists that are going out of business even as local communities tend to prefer them over the big pharma chains. And so when you have these types of situations where producers are making something that consumers value and consumers want, but the market is not set up to allow them to succeed, Uh, when you have somebody with a good idea and a viable business built around that good idea, but the market's not rewarding that good idea, it suggests that something is broken in the market and that there may be a competition problem. So as we've been following what's happening in Hollywood and the strike, uh, which I understand is now um, you know, more than 100 days and, and going strong, we wanted to make sure we were hearing from people on the ground to see if there are any competition issues that may be affecting the situation. And what did you find? Well, we heard a lot, uh, and you know, WGA in particular has been very active in, in sharing thoughts with the FTC. They submitted a comment uh, to us as we were reviewing our merger guidelines, and they shared a whole set of ways in which the market structure has dramatically changed over recent decades where we've seen both significant concentration, both among studios as well as chains, uh, as well as vertical integration. Um, and the combination of this consolidation and vertical integration seems to have created a market structure where uh, you know we hear about how writers and producers and showrunners are all making less, even as companies are charging customers more. And you know critics seem to say that the quality of content being produced is actually in decline. So increasingly we see some of the red flags that suggest the market structure is not actually serving the creators or the ultimate viewers.
0: Chair Khan, can you explain? Uh, for our audience who they hear the term vertical integration thrown around a lot but what what does that mean exactly
1: yeah it's a great question so vertical integration basically means when you have different parts of a supply chain that are actually rolled up in one company so you know this is and this is not a new issue in fact uh, you know back in the 30s and 40s writers and producers were really uh, frustrated because vertical integration meant that the studios, had merged with the distributors. And so you had both production of content and distribution of content housed in a single company and uh, critics and, and people in the industry at that time argued that that type of combination of production and distribution created perverse conflicts of interest where the distributors were incentivized not to necessarily promote the content that customers and viewers best liked but in fact, they were privileging the content that was owned by the parent company. And so those types of conflicts of interest can basically end up under undermining uh, a, a market where you really want to be promoting the best ideas and giving access to viewers and customers of the best content. Um, that big fight ended up resulting in what were known as the Paramount Consent Decrees. So this was a 1948 order by the government that required the breakup. Of the studios and distributors. Uh, We saw something similar uh, known as the financial interest and syndication rules. So this was applying a similar breakup in the context of the television industry. And basically what this did was help create a much more open market. So you know through mid-century we had thousands and thousands of independent movie theaters. We had multiple major studios and so if you were a producer or a writer and you had a good idea and you wanted to sell it, you had lots of different viable paths to market. And overall, we think that created a, a healthier ecosystem than a situation where you have a handful of gatekeepers. And so the only path to market is increasingly through you know one or a very small number of companies.
2: Speaking to the consumers today, we, we, we talk about the producers and uh, the creators and the problems they have. But if they look at the the market right now, they they would say, "Well, there's eight different services. There's I have more stuff back up in my queue than I can I can ever begin to watch. I can I can unsubscribe to three of them and subscribe to two more. So how how is this how, how is my choice currently being limited, or what the selection of what I get uh, being curtailed?"
1: Yeah, and look, I don't profess to be, you know, a cultural critic or commentator, but just some of the commentary that I've read that really goes into uh, breaking down some of the numbers of the types of movies and the types of um, content that ends up doing well. It ends up looking to be, you know, a handful of blockbusters such that even some of the movies that are, you know, up for major awards are not the ones that are doing well. And so by some basic metrics, there seems to be something that's broken in the market, um, again, this is just something that we hear from market participants. I think the other thing that we've heard and, and seen is that the advent of streaming seems to have broken key signals in the market, where before you used to have this feedback loop between kind of publicly accountable metrics of what content was actually doing well. And that then led to who was getting to be paid on an ongoing basis, be it through residuals or other things. But as you've seen um, firms make that data unavailable, I think we are seeing complaints about that feedback loop being broken. And so, what firms are investing in or what producers are even incentivized to invest in is not necessarily what is doing the best with customers. But I think, big picture, there seems to just be more of a black box that we're hearing about uh, where it's not even really visible what's going on. And again, I think for us as the FTC, what's really notable is just how many analogues and parallels there are between what's happening in this industry and what we see across sorts of all sorts of other industries where again we've seen consolidation, vertical integration and the rise of dominant middlemen, intermediaries and gatekeepers that sometimes are not always serving the best interests of the customers or the producers that they're connecting.
0: Well, you know, we write a lot and talk a lot at the Ankler about this sort of general unease that people have and uh, about um, the relationship with tech companies, um, and how it's changed, as you've noted, several industries across the board. Um, and I thought this quote was uh, was great. Representative. I know he I know he is retired, but Representative David uh, Chiccolini. am I pronouncing that right? Ciccolini. Mm-hmm. Sissolini, excuse me, of Rhode Island. Um, and he was the ranking Democrat on the subcommittee on regulatory, reform, commercial, and antitrust law. And he gave this comment which I thought would really resonate with people. Um, the whole country has been struggling to understand why the economy is not operating in the right way. Wages have remained stagnant. Workers have less and less power. All we're trying to do is create a level playing field, and that's harder when you have mega companies. But I'm going to throw out the counter argument that I've people make, which is, this is anti-capital. This is anti-capitalism. You're trying to regulate business. Um, and what would be your what would be your response to that?
1: So antitrust and competition laws are entirely pro-capitalism, right? We really want uh, markets that are rewarding good ideas. And so, if you're an entrepreneur and you have a good idea, you're able to go attract financing for that idea. You want to have a marketplace where you can compete on the merits and where the businesses that are doing well are the ones that are providing the products or services that customers want at a high quality and low price. And so this competition policy and antitrust is really about creating and facilitating the market structures that are gonna be rewarding that type of good idea and where companies can succeed on the merits. Um, In order for that to happen though, you need rules of the game. And antitrust is really about those rules of the game Uh, We have merger laws that are designed to prevent mergers that may substantially lessen competition or tend to create a monopoly, the idea being that if you allow a market to be controlled by one entity, the type of kind of price signals and other signals that reward what customers actually want get broken and that those monopolies are then able to jack up price and degrade quality uh, in ways that is anti-capitalism. So antitrust and competition policy is precisely about the rules of the game that are going to allow those markets and free enterprise to really flourish.
0: And it's worth pointing out that you have bipartisan support on many of your initiatives. Is, Is that correct?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, concerns about monopolies goes back to the American founding in many ways, right? I mean, the American Revolution was a protest against, you know, uh, undue privilege and a deep concern about concentrated power. And there was a recognition that in order for a democratic state to be viable and thriving, we needed to ensure not just checks and balances in our political sphere, in our system of governance, but also checks and balances in our commercial sphere, in our economic sphere. And that's what the antitrust and anti-monopoly laws were fundamentally about. They were about checking the types of dangerous concentrations of economic power that can make democratic liberty impossible. And so that's really, you know, the, the history and tradition of these laws. And I think we see a lot of bipartisan concern about growing concentration in our economy, about growing monopolies. I've had the chance to testify before Congress a whole bunch of times in the last few months, and I would hear concerns from both Democratic and Republican members. I would hear from members about how monopolies are hollowing out rural America, about how monopolies are making it very difficult for consumers and patients to be able to afford life-saving medicine. About how consolidation is making it harder for workers to earn a fair and living wage, and so I think we've definitely heard about concerns from from all sides.
2: So you say you've you've, you've seen uh, in other industries that the tech the tech industry has has gone into. You've seen the similar trends play out as we're seeing here. Can you give us a sense of uh, where does this go if a few more steps down the road if it if it continues unchecked? Uh, how, how, how does this impact um, what we see and, and, and what what our industry looks like, if we can keep going?
1: I would say big picture, you know, a couple of things. One of the trends that we've seen that contributes to some of these parallel situation in other markets is not really just new technology, but it's the legal framework against which these new technologies arrive. So one of the big changes in antitrust law over the last few decades was that starting in the 70s and 80s, enforcers and policymakers decided to take a much more hands-off approach. Uh, They decided that monopolies and consolidation could deliver a lot more efficiencies, and that more often than not, it was best to just stand back and get out of the way. What that policy choice did was unleash decades of consolidation of huge merger and acquisition waves, which affected the entertainment industry, but all sorts of other industries, and so, a lot of the issues that we hear about from markets ranging from healthcare to grocery to airlines to uh, online ticketing um, is happening against the backdrop of these massive changes in the structure of the market. Um, the role of technology is really interesting because, again, technology enters a market against the backdrop of legal rules that are determining how that technology is going to affect existing markets. So whether a technology, be it streaming or be it artificial intelligence, ends up boosting the market, uh, where it's enabling uh, producers to make what customers want and to be able to invest in the long-term viability and health of the industry, or whether these technologies instead give outsized power to middlemen and intermediaries who can then use those new tools as leverage over producers to weaken their bargaining power uh, and ultimately degrade the industry over the long term which of those paths and which of any other multiple paths we go down is the result of policy and legal choices. It's not some type of inevitability. And so because we've seen a set of policy choices around antitrust, around competition policy, I think that predominantly explains why we've seen some of these trends across sectors. Similarly, as we look at artificial intelligence tools uh, potentially becoming much more widely adopted, I think it's incredibly important for us to keep in mind that legal and policy choices are, again, going to determine what these technologies ultimately uh, do in terms of having an effect on people. It's it's not some type of inevitability.
0: It's a, I'm curious your take. There's There's been a change in the entertainment industry over the last, I would say, decade, maybe even the last five years, where Wall Street used to not be this prevailing master over the business. And it suddenly became an industry where it wasn't enough to own a studio or an entertainment company. You were, you were always thinking about your exit, your next financial play out of the current market where you were. And that typically involved MA. and so we've had, you know, in the past 10, 13 years, Comcast bought NBC universal, Disney acquired Fox, Amazon, Amazon bought MGM, CAA bought ICM and Warner brothers has been owned by just about everyone. Um, if, under today's FTC, what would have happened in entertainment?
1: So, look, we as enforcers always have to consider the specific facts of any merger, and you know, look at it very closely based on the facts. Um, so, it's hard to say generally, but I think we at the FTC are in a moment of learning and reflecting based on what we've seen over the last couple of decades. Um, I mentioned we've been in the process of revising our merger guidelines, which sounds like a pretty technical document, but it's basically our enforcement manual to help us and and to help the market determine what are the types of mergers that the FTC and the antitrust division are likely to to view as as legally problematic, and we lay out the different ways that a merger can violate the law. Um, One trend that we've seen uh, since the 1980s was a view that vertical integration or this combination of different functions in a single company um, was was generally benign. And so we've generally seen a more hands-off approach to vertical mergers. We make very clear in this document that those types of vertical deals are gonna get scrutiny. Um, And we've seen both lawsuits from the, the FTC and the DOJ looking to challenge some of these vertical deals. Uh, We haven't always been successful in the courts, and so we look closely at some of those results and figure out, you know, how can we be more successful going forward? Um, But this is also an issue that Congress seems to be very concerned about, and if lawmakers ultimately decide that they need to even further strengthen the laws against even illegal vertical mergers, um, that'll definitely be very welcome.
2: How much do you think uh, perception of uh, the role of the the tech companies in the economy has has changed. I mean, it seems it seems like it's gone from this utopian dream of they're going to give us a perfect world where you could have everything you want at uh, touch a touch of fingers to now sort of a hopelessness that that it's it's too big and it can't be stopped at this point. And um, how, how do you see that from where you sit?
1: I mean, I think we've certainly seen uh, a shift in, in public opinion based on polls and surveys where they does seem to be more skepticism and suspicion of um, some of these firms, as well as a sense of disillusionment. And I think partly that stems from people's experiences as consumers and customers, where sometimes they realize they don't have many choices. And so if a company overnight decides to change its privacy policies, where they say, actually, we're going to collect all of this information about you all over the internet and use it to tar- send you targeted advertisements, or if they make other changes to, to privacy or security, the people often feel they can't actually, in practice, vote with their feet. Right. We're now increasingly living in an economy where people are dependent on some of these technologies and services to navigate day-to-day life, but oftentimes they find that they don't have choice such that if they don't like the services or the terms in which they're getting these services, they don't really ha- can't really walk away. Um, I think we've also seen, and we at the FTC here, uh, concerns from producers and creators and the companies that are actually being connected to customers through these platforms. So be it retailers, be it publishers, uh, be it other types of apps. um, We increasingly hear that some of these uh, markets are not really conducive to the producers and creators accessing customers on fair terms They're not able to get, um, you know, a a price for their services that's reflective of the investments that they're making. And so I think we at the FTC hear concerns both from the customer-consumer side as well as from the producer-creator side. Um, And so it's certainly something that we continue to to hear concerns about and uh, determine how we can be best acting in this area.
0: I wanted to just flag this quote that Adam Conover, a writer and WGA board member Let's see, he said in uh April 2022 that when ATT acquired Time Warner, let's see, he that his show got killed, that there were budget cuts and his show got killed. And I think there were, I, I if I'm not mistaken, I think when Disney acquired Fox, that that was essentially the beginning of the end for back-end payments to creators. And I think you might be familiar with an essay, Elena Smith, the creator of Dickinson wrote for us titled The Death Spiral of Hollywood Monopolies. And in it, she stated really clearly, like this does not work. The system we have doesn't work for creators. It doesn't work for executives. It doesn't work for anybody in the business. Um, yet I, this inevitability um, of of consolidation keeps going. And I just wanted to read you, Paramount Global CEO Bob, Bob Backish recently said, consolidation has been the rule in business for a long time, certainly in media. So it's hard for me to bet on anything other than consolidation will happen in the future. And then Jason Kylar the former CEO of Warner Media, wrote in the Wall Street Journal, two or three major mergers and acquisitions involving enter- entertainment companies is coming in the next 24 months as cash flow challenges deepen. So, How do you speak to that inevitability? Is it inevitable? And is what are the things you're putting in motion now not going to stop things in the near term?
1: Look, I can very much appreciate why there can be a sense of resignation and inevitability. But the very reason that Congress passed the antitrust laws was to ensure that lawmakers and policymakers are actually the ones who are in the driver's seat about determining whether our markets are monopolized or whether they're open and competitive and serving both producers and consumers alike. And so we have tools where we can address this problem. Um, you know, we, are, we can't do it unilaterally. Uh, in order to bring lawsuits, we have to file them in court and ultimately courts make determinations about uh, you know whether a merger can go through or whether the agency can be successful in blocking it. Um, but I absolutely think continued public scrutiny on this is vital. And for the antitrust agencies to continue hearing uh, from people across the board is absolutely critical. Uh, we got over 5,000 comments as part of our revision of the merger guidelines, including uh, writers, actors, uh, direct the Directors Guild of America, um, and it's really vital that we hear directly from the people in these markets, so that we don't have blind spots and are not just going off of an incomplete picture of how a merger is going to affect an industry in a market.
2: you it's, it, it's something we get a lot here from uh, from from the rest of the world uh, uh, looking at Hollywood. Why, why should why should anybody care about Hollywood? Why should why why should anybody who's not who doesn't work here for a living they they you know they tend to look at our our strikes, our unrest, and say, oh, you're a bunch of spoiled actors and writers. And and what do we if you all if, if if Hollywood fell into the ocean, we'd watch YouTube shorts and we'd be just fine. Uh what do what do you say to that? Why do, why 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 does Hollywood matter?
1: Well look, it's such an important part of American life and American history, um, the culture that it represents and the vehicle that entertainment is for uh, you know, people's ideas is just such a vital part of the vibrancy of ideas in America's marketplaces. And so protecting these markets where people are able to share their ideas, share their stories, I mean, it's so essential to what really makes us human is is being able to share these stories. And so to have a market uh, that's facilitating that is absolutely vital. I
0: I wanted to raise something that was just in the news in the last few weeks that uh, Simon and Schuster, Sold to KKR, which is the private equity firm, this behemoth that um, was known as being so ruthless that it was the subject of a book entitled "Barbarians at the Gate." Um, and Simon and Schuster's merger with Penguin Random House, Bertelsman, that was blocked, I believe, by the Department of Justice. And um, and it's sold to KKR for less money. Is this is this a better outcome? I mean, what what are the outcomes going to be now if you're blocked? blocked at the federal level and then, you know, selling off for parts to private equity?
1: It's such an important question. And, you know, we need to absolutely make sure that the antitrust laws and antitrust enforcement are not creating um, outcomes where, you know, you may have a merger between competitors that is blocked, but then an acquisition by a firm that may in the long term still be undermining the competitive viability of those assets that that's allowed. Um, You know, we at the FTC are business model agnostic, uh, but we certainly want to be attuned to the business incentives that different business models can create. Uh, You can have a whole set of different private equity firms that are prioritizing different business strategies. But there is one model of private equity that's focused on kind of the strip and flip model. Right. So you buy an asset, you load it up with debt, you extract value and sell it off. Um, and that can be at odds with promoting the long-term viability and value of the asset and can be undermining competition in the long-term. And so that's something that as antitrust enforcers, we have to be attuned to those market realities. Um, you know, Ultimately, we have to apply the existing law to the relevant facts on a case-by-case basis, but we certainly also have to be aware of just the realities of how businesses are making these decisions.
2: So one one thing I, I know you speak to a lot of uh a lot of our corporate leaders here, the uh, the studio heads uh and the like. And for me, one of the mysteries has been the, the the drift of the streaming wars has been very bad for the legacy studios. They they've almost all done uh pretty badly at this time. How how do how do the people in charge, without talking about any specifics, how do they feel about about this and why are they upset about? where things are going are they trying to to resist it or they do they feel just as helpless as the rest of us to just drift along with uh the flow of this
1: you know i think overall you can always see how markets can either be structured to incentivize a race to the top or be incentivized, or be structured to incentivize a race to the bottom and so sometimes when you see markets that have entered a bit of a You know, doom loop where everybody's doing a race to the bottom, that can be bad for everybody, right? And I think the role of of policy and of legal rules is to actually try to incentivize that race to the top. Because again, you want companies and you want producers that are able to be in a market where they're producing something that customers value at high quality and a good price. And that's ultimately the type of competition that we want to be promoting. When you have a market where I think Janice, as you said earlier, everybody seems to be losing, there seems to be something you know deeply broken in those types of instances, and and that's where I think policymakers have to be aware and and be able to act. Oh my God, the doom loop! I love that. It's
0: it's very apt for these times, which which uh, brings me to my question. So these strikes. There's some there was good movement um, in recent days where it looks like their sides are talking again and their counter proposals are going to be put forth by the WGA. So after these strikes are resolved, the larger issues remain, however. Am I right?
1: Yeah, I mean, look, I don't want to prejudge you know anything what 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 is or isn't achieved um, through these contractual negotiations, but uh, based on what we he- we're hearing from from writers, from uh, actors, from others, it seems to be that some of these issues are stemming from, market structure questions. And so unless those market structure questions are addressed, it seems like potentially some of these power imbalances will persist. So what happens
0: now? We're about to enter, God forbid, a presidential election season. Um, I know Biden, you know, he appointed you. He is a big believer in your agenda. What happens to our corporate life if Biden does not get a second term? What happens to your agenda?
1: So look, we at the FTC are on the front lines of protecting Americans from unlawful business practices um, across sectors of the economy, Um, and we're really proud of the work we've already been able to do, but there's a lot more work to be done. Um, At the end of the day, I think one of the biggest changes that we've seen over the last few years is that antitrust has gone from being an arcane, esoteric, technocratic area to something that more and more people recognize is actually critical to shaping their day-to-day lives, right? And I think the more and more we see people recognize antitrust and competition policy as not just this arcane field, but actually something that determines uh, whether writers and producers and directors can be accessing a market that's working for them and working for viewers or whether that market is instead one that's not working for anybody, the more we recognize those as questions of policy, including antitrust and competition policy, I think that change in, in awareness can have a lasting impact no matter who ends up being in these positions going forward. So
2: when when you look at the uh, potential mergers that we talked about, and it's a parlor game in Hollywood to, uh, to say, this company will buy this company and try to try to, Play it through. I know you can't speak to uh, individual circumstances, but how do you look at how you would respond to to these combinations, and what are the uh, what are the instruments available to you? They, your your predecessor tried to tried to stop the uh, Warner Discovery merger, and uh, that was unsuccessful in the end. So what? What can you do uh, how do you look at those and what can you do about it uh, ultimately
0: i think what richard's really asking is how would you feel about apple buying disney <laughs> yeah,
2: exactly.
0: or nbc universal buying warner brothers and we know you can't speak to specific companies but that's what he's really saying
1: <laughs> yeah and i'll say big picture you know the ftc shares jurisdiction with the antitrust division and so some Uh, We kind of split and divide and conquer by sectors and some of these um, industries are in their wheelhouse. You know, when we get a merger uh, and and we think there might be legal problems, the first thing we do is is dig deeper. Uh, We try to hear from a whole set of perspectives in the market. Um, And especially when you have, you know, consolidated markets or highly concentrated markets, we want to be especially vigilant because that's where Congress wanted to, in particular, arrest monopolies and their incipiency. Uh, In the proposed merger guidelines that we recently published, we lay out some of the factors that we consider. Um, Janice, you mentioned that we also specifically mention how mergers can reduce competition in ways that hurt workers and labor. Uh, In the draft guidelines, we lay out some of the types of factors that we're going to be looking at. For example, uh, whether a merger could allow a company to dock wages or freeze payments to workers, uh, whether a merger would allow a firm to cut benefits or make schedules less predictable, right? There are all these dimensions of competition that affect workers differently than they affect consumers, and we want to make sure that we're fully aware of that. Uh, we also know that getting a job is, is different from buying a toaster, right? It's If you are looking to switch jobs, it can just be much more costly. There can be much more search frictions. And so we need to take that part of the market very seriously. Um, and so that's a lens that we're going to be applying as well. I'll be remiss if I didn't note that the proposed merger guidelines are currently a draft. We put them out for public comment, and we're going to be collecting public comment till September 18th. Uh, so, if anybody out there is interested in how the FTC and DOJ uh, police mergers and enforce the the antitrust laws uh, in the context of mergers, we want to hear from you. Uh, please send us comments. Uh, we really need to be hearing from people on the ground about how consolidation has affected them and and how our potential guidelines could address that.
0: Uh, before we before we go, uh, I think we have two two more questions. One, the first one. Uh, I wanted to ask was, I, I believe you've been asked about this, but I, I'd love, I think our audience would be interested. How do you, how are you processing um, the ruling in favor of Microsoft and um, Activision Blizzard uh, coming together?
1: Yeah, so that's still pending. So I can't say too much about it. Um, you know, we're always disappointed when um, things don't go our way in court, but that matter is currently on appeal to the Ninth Circuit. So, um, you know, we're we're charging forward with that one.
0: Okay. And then the last one, and we'll see if you and Richard have a mind meld on this easy one, or maybe it's a hard one. Uh, (laughs) What is your favorite TV show and film?
1: Oh, man, Um, that's a hard one. I would say my favorite TV show over the last few years, is probably Insecure. Nice. And favorite movie. Gosh, I don't know about a favorite, but I recently rewatched Fargo and, and loved it. Oh, my God!
2: do you see movies in the theaters?
1: uh you know i just I just had a baby a few months ago. He's six months old, so I haven't gotten out too much but it. uh, but my husband's also a big a big movie buff, so we do try to get out when we can uh, and and no Barbie yet no, I'm again uh hoping uh when my brother's able to come babysit, I'll be able to go see it.
0: <laughs> you are the ultimate Barbie woman. I will just tell you that you will <laughs> I think you will love it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, Lena Khan, we are so grateful to have you join us and give your insights about uh, on the state of entertainment. Uh, thank you very much.
2: Thank you so much.
0: Thank you. Well, that was great, Richard, wasn't it?
2: Yeah, that was terrific. I mean, we've been writing about these issues on the Ankler for a while now, and to hear a, a high government official like this uh, t- speaking about them is like a great awakening is happening.
0: Well, it certainly pierces the perception that this is a bubble here that we all live in.
2: Absolutely. Uh,
0: All right. Well, um, again, we hope you enjoyed that conversation with Lena Khan. Please remember to subscribe to The Ankler for more news and information about the entertainment business at theankler.com. Subscribe to us on your favorite podcast apps to hear the podcast and follow us on the socials at The Ankler. to make your voice heard. There's a link in our podcast notes where you can speak to the FTC about their uh, 13 guidelines under proposal. Thanks for joining and we'll see you next time.